0: JB Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 43 of the Insure Tech Geek Podcast, talking about all things tech for the modern generation with Kate Terry from Surround Insurance. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Man, oh man, oh man. Another week, another week. Winter is here, definitively in Texas. Had a first hard freeze. Killed all my flowers out in front of the house. Kind of sad. They look sad and droopy now. But no snow. We don't have snow and ice like you guys in Boston do, uh... Kate, we got Kate Terry with us from Surround Insurance. Kate, uh, how's it going up there in beautiful Boston, uh, Massachusetts?
1: Good. I'm delighted to be here. But you're right about winter. We're getting our first snowstorm tomorrow morning.
0: Ooh, so exciting! Mm. <laughs> it, it, it is exciting. You get that first dusting, and then you get the snow, and then you, the lawns are covered, and the kids make you know snow snowballs, and they make snowmen, and then and then you're like, ah, okay, I'm tired of it. Let's get back to that. it's.
1: It's really beautiful until the moment you pick up a snow shovel, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you're like, "Oh, this again!"
1: I'm like, oh, I'm out of shape."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Rob, you grew up in Michigan. Did you? Were you best friends with a snow shovel?
2: Hated it. Hated snow. I tell people one of the reasons I'm in Texas is as early as six years old, they would send us out for recess, and kids were building igloos and forts and having snowball fights, and I would just sit out there like. When is recess over? This sucks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Some people just aren't made for it. And that's all I'll say about that. Right? You just got to go south. And some people love the snow. I have friends in Michigan... Who you know cannot wait for the snow to drop because that they they break out the snowmobiles and the parkas and it's officially mm-hmm. winter sports time and hunting and all the other things that they like to do and it, it's just funny it's it, 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 you know, the the world is bifurcated in so many ways and that is one of them right I mean like it's co you know COVID has exposed some of this Kate you know where you have like yeah. people who hate having anything on their face and others who don't mind a mask people yeah. who like. People who really genuinely don't like others and have used this as an opportunity to isolate themselves and and use COVID as the ultimate introverse excuse to never be around other people, and others who like me who literally like you know go go stir crazy mad when you when you can't be around others. Like it, it, it's fascinating how. It's, you know, you you pick a single issue and it'll be like a 50-50 response rate on all of them.
1: Yeah, I think the only thing we can all agree on is that today's date is the 700th of March, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting old, you know?
0: Yeah, it is. It is. Can someone just come inject me with something that'll fix this so we can move on? I mean, for real. I am thankful I'm in Texas. I am. Mm. Because... It's warm most of the year here, even in the winter, it's warm. And so you're not trapped indoors breathing other people's air particles, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll be honest, I've always been a bit of a, I'm an extra, I'm an, I'm a germaphobe extrovert, wrap your brain around that one. <laughs> I've always been a bit of a germaphobe. So I've always loved the Ma- the Howie Mandel fist bump. I mean, who knew that Howie Mandel was a visionary, but he was. <laughs> and, and I've always been a fan of the fist bump. You know, I've always been a fan of, of, you sneezing and coughing into your and it always made me really angry when people coughed or, you know, people, some people don't ever cover their mouth when they cough, Kate, they literally will walk up and just go, like right
1: humanity at, is inexplicable, you know, oh, <laughs> like,
0: like we had to go through education with 7 billion people on how to wash their hands. Apple rolled out a feature on my Apple watch. When I start washing my hands at times, how long I'm watching, washing my hands for. Did you know this? You can enable it. It's called the, it's called the hand washing reminders. It's a new feature. Do
1: I want to enable that though? Like, is it helpful or does it does it kind of disturb you? You know how how your hand washing technique technique is off.
0: I found it helpful in the beginning, and yeah. now it, now it pisses me off. And it's uh, because I'm like, stop telling me how to wash my hands. <laughs> <laughs> They're it's like fine. Modern,
1: like everything's dinging at you all the time. I know. Right? There's always a notification.
0: Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah. Well, I, I I'll be honest. I did not enable the uh, exposure notifications in iPhone. Mm. I didn't. I because I think it's going to be so severely misused that I'm like, there's no way CDC just lowered their guidance to seven to 10 days because Mm -hmm. people don't want to quarantine for 14 days. Turns out it was overkill anyway, because seven to 10 is all you needed. And so people were literally not quarantining because it was too long. And so now they're hoping that it's seven to 10 days. It's it's funny. I tell people, don't don't call me a Republican or a Democrat. Just call me a capitalist. I'm a capitalist. I am. I'm just an I'm just an unashamed, ardent, militant capitalist, you know, and, uh, you know, but but in in cases like these, there's a it's been it's been it's been a sporadic, weird, uh, weird few weeks. But I'm 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 grateful Christmas is coming because I think 21 is going to can actually there's a lot of high points for 2020 to me. Kate, we're going to. We're going to deep dive on some fun stuff with you, and we're going to geek out for a little bit. Before we do, I want to remind all of our listeners that you can subscribe to our podcast by texting Geek Out to 66866. Uh, That's Geek Out, G-E-E-K, geek, like me, the nerd. Geek Out to 66866, and then they'll subscribe you. We do a little email newsletter with the show notes and the links we talk about and the interviews and Hope you you all have enjoyed it. We've we've passed we've passed several thousand listens now. So we've actually we've we've had, we have a lot of people listening now. It's been really fun to grow the listener base here and interact with you out there in, in listener land. And uh, so we hope that all of you have enjoyed listening to this uh, this year. And I've I, I wanted to say it's the first show past Thanksgiving. And Rob and I each took one by ourselves before Thanksgiving. So I haven't got to say this, but I'm saying I'm thankful for Rob. Rob has volunteered to be my co-host in this venture, and I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you, Rob, and I just wanted to thank you on the air for doing this with me.
2: You're very kind, James. Yeah, likewise, I've had a, a blast doing it. I appreciate the, the invite to bring me on board way back in whatever it was, episode 13 or 14. Yep. I don't remember the exact first one, and yep. um, you're right. Yeah, we've missed each other in the last two episodes, so yeah. it's actually great to be back together
0: again yeah so we've got a few so we're going to do uh, a few and then we're going to take off for christmas and new year's and then we'll be back in 2021 i want to point out that that the roaring 20s came right off the heels of a pandemic and i want to remind everybody of that people are like if this ever i heard that today someone said to me if this goes away i'm like it's going away i i okay first off the influenza pandemic was Way, way worse than this. If you think, if y'all think this is bad in listener land, my great grandfather died in the influenza epidemic in 1919. I left, my, I left my grandmother without a father for the rest of her life, and she wrote about it to me. And I went back and reviewed the, the writings. Thank, thankfully, my grandmother wrote me some notes before she passed away about her childhood and her dad. That was far, far worse. Uh, you're talking about a fatality rate that was literally like several times higher than this one. I mean, it was really bad. It, it, it impacted kids and adults. It was just yeah. And it ended in like a year and a half. So I just, I just want to, I just want to remind people that these, uh, like all things in the planet, good and bad. Unfortunately, good things come to an end. So do bad ones. That, that is a positive. So just stay focused on that. We are going to talk about something really interesting today. And in our pre-show conversation, I was getting to know the enigma that is Kate Terry. <laughs> so, so
1: mysterious.
0: I, I know. That. She is mysterious. Okay. So this is, uh, as they would say in Boston, she's wicked smart. And uh, she probably parks a guy in the yard. And uh, she did some studying back in the day at Harvard Yard because she went to Harvard, got a BA in history, and get this, Celtic studies.
1: Yeah. It was the well, the medieval Welsh that I studied that led me to my successful insurance career.
0: I believe that actually. So Kate, I have a really interesting Celtic study story.
1: <laughs> you do? <laughs> Literally nobody That's has you know. ever said that to me before. I was going to say
0: I bet <laughs> you've never heard that. Ever. By the way, she got an MBA at Harvard too. So we're just gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're just gonna throw that in there. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, she went to one of the hardest MBA schools to get into. Uh
1: the second time was remedial. The second, yeah.
0: So she went to she went to Harvard for MBA, went to Harvard for undergrad. So Kelts, I love history. I love history. And Rob has had to listen to me multiple times, unfortunately, pontificate about the history of insurance because you know, it started with bottom contracts, and the Babylonians really invented yep. insurance. And, you know, it started with loans and finance agreements, which is why you say that like you can kind of you can kind of confuse fintech and insurtech because banking and insurance have always been like this because the first insurance contracts were forgivable loans. Right. So yep. I love history. It's just fascinating to me. And, and what fear infuriates me when you study history is how many people don't study history. And they repeat yeah. the same stupid mistakes that if you just read like one or two history books, you could be like, oh, wait, we already tried that as a people before and probably shouldn't again. Right. The Celts are an interesting study. I love listening to a guy <clears throat> and I love recommending other podcasts. On my podcast, the Dan Carlin Hardcore Ooh, History. podcast.
1: History. Great <clears throat> podcast. What an amazing.
0: Yeah. OK, this guy. This guy. Let me tell you about Dan Carlin. Amazing, amazing, amazing historian. And and the way, and I listened to him talk about how he podcast, he literally like freeforms that crap, which is amazing, which means he's got like his outline, but the rest just comes out of his head. And... You can fact check him all day long. he's accurate he's not making stuff up because uh, he has a whole team of fact checkers. It's a free podcast, but each episode is literally a full audiobook and it's free, and they just ask for a donation of a dollar an episode and Kate, I give him a buck an episode every time he releases
1: one. It is totally worth it. <laughs> totally Those worth things it. are like four hours long, too. They're amazing.
0: Four <laughs> hours per episode. And he did a whole episode. Did you listen to it on the Celtic Holocaust?
1: I did, yes. So yes,
0: yes, the, yes. Th- the fascinating thing about the Celts is that they – what is a Celt? What is a Celt? Well, actually, according to Dan Carlin, which you know he, mm-hmm. he read a bunch of other definitions, a Celt yeah. is anyone who identifies as a Celt.
1: It's pretty much true.
0: <laughs> that's the actual definition. And the Celtic Holocaust are thinking of people are thinking that's like when the Romans invaded Ireland and, and, and Wales. No, 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 no. This is all the Celts that lived in France and Germany that that the the you know the the, the Romans came and wiped out, right? Mm-hmm. They just they just wiped them out. It was amazing. Amazing show of force. So that's my, that's my side note on Celtic studies is a Celt is anyone who identifies as a Celt. So I, I that day when I found that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to identify as a Celt, then I'm a Celt. You can't tell me that I'm not a Celt because I'm saying I'm a Celt. So I think Celtic <laughs> is cool. So you studied Celtic studies. What was your goal when you're sitting there at Havid and you're and you're and you're eating lunch in Havid Yad and you're having probably maybe some maybe maybe a lobster roll or you're eating you know some typical clam chowder, and you're you're 19, 20 years old, what are you yep. thinking you're going to do with a history degree?
1: Well, so my parents asked me that question, and I didn't have a good answer for them. But I will say this, I actually thought my degree would have nothing to do with my future job. So... I went to college and I don't come from a super educated family. Like I'm not like second generation Harvard or third generation. My name is on no building there. Right. And so I had this job at a consulting firm in Harvard Square where I did research for them and I worked 30 hours a week for four years and full time in the summer. And so I thought I was going to be a consultant and I was a consultant. So I spent four years after college doing the exact same thing I'd done in college. Um, But the cool thing is I actually got hired by a competitor to the firm that I was working for. It was a Spanish company and they were opening their first Boston, their first U S office in Boston and their real estate deal fell through. Like just before I was supposed to start, you know, it happens. Right. And they said to me, well, either we could delay your start date by a few months, or if you want to come to Barcelona for a little while, We could make that happen, but we don't want to make you do that if you don't want to. I was like, are you kidding me? I'd like never been anywhere before. I'm going to Barcelona. So I ended up spending a year in Barcelona. Hold on. Let's say it correct let's say it
0: correctly. Barcelona.
1: Barcelona. Gracias for the correct correction. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So so like, yeah, I actually worked abroad for the first four years of my career. And people sometimes see that on LinkedIn and they're like, How did you get that job? And I'm like, I like every other major career move in my life. I have absolutely no idea. But when somebody asked me if I want to do something cool, the answer was yes.
0: Amen to that. My general answer to everything is Mm -hmm. yes. I just like saying yes. Remember that Jim Carrey movie called Yes, the Yes Man? You never (laughs) watched that? It's called Yes Man. Oh, Oh, your homework this weekend, Kate Terry. Okay. (laughs) Your homework this weekend. It's a 2008 film by Jim Carrey called Yes Man.
1: Fantastic.
0: I laughed so hard, I almost peed my pants at this movie. <laughs> my wife says I have a, I have the world's most severe case of FOMO. And so as a result, I say yes to about everything. I tried to get your gig getting out of Texas A&M Business School. And I went to Price Waterhouse because I did two internships yeah. with them. And I was like, I, yeah. want, I, I want to work in your Mexico City office because I was already fluent in Spanish at the time. Okay, so yeah, I was perfect. like, I'm fluent in Spanish. I lived in Mexico in 95 and 96. You know, you you like me as an intern, and they go and they, they they literally almost patted me on the head and said, "Okay, this is this is I'm tra- I'm 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 kind of like you know I, I'm, I'm modifying what they said, but it was like, oh, sweet boy." Just come work here in Dallas in the suburbs in a small cubicle for a few years, and then we'll consider your request, which basically <laughs> meant that's never going to happen. Which led me oh, to.
1: St- summer child, if you believe that. Yes. Then.
0: <laughs> so, but so evidently, you're like, oh, yeah, Barcelona? Sure. Okay. So you went to Barcelona, and what'd you learn?
1: I learned all kinds of things. I learned how to speak Spanish, I learned how to understand Catalan. I learned how to be a consultant internationally. I learned a lot of things about, this is going to sound really dated now, but mobile telecom because yep. Europe was far ahead of the US way, in the mobile technology. Way ahead like of us. Wireless application protocol, like surfing the web on like yep. a little Nokia device. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing was everyone thought I was really cool because the internet generally was way ahead in the US versus Europe. So I was like the cool American who knew about the internet, which was really laughable. But hey, it worked.
0: But Barcelona is the epicenter of mobile. That's why World mm-hmm. Mobile Congress it is is, yes. the, is the, so the, went yeah, yeah it's, it. it's yes. in 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 Barcelona uh, is the yes. sorry, sorry the Mobile World Congress is yes. is held yes. there. It got, of course got canceled. It's last year, which, which this year which sucked. But uh, that that's awesome. So what? Where did you go? You have this amazing early life experience in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And where, where do you go from there? How do you how do you wind yep. up at, how do you wind up at Progressive? Because you obviously you had to go to B school for your MBA, and then you're done with your MBA. How do you wind up at Progressive?
1: So you mean it's not a reasonable story that I was in Barcelona one day? I said I want to move to the Midwest and work in insurance.
0: Totally, no, unreasonable. Unreasonable. <laughs> totally unreasonable. No. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. No offense to anybody in the Midwest. Okay. Cause I like the Midwest. There's
1: nothing wrong with the Midwest. It's just like, if you're in Barcelona on the beach, it's (laughs) it's not,
0: you know, it's just not a prime target. You know, you're not like, I want to go to Kansas city, right? (laughs) Like
1: (laughs) (laughs) Barcelona, Cleveland. No, no, no. So I spent one year in Barcelona. The company I worked for opened a London office. They said to me, "Uh, you know, there is this London office open. Is there any chance you might want to go there? (laughs) I was like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. So I spent three years in London. I got to the point where I'd been promoted to um, an engagement manager, right? So I was managing projects. And that's the moment in professional services when you either put your head down and grind away like a million hours a week until you start to sell projects or you leave. Yeah. And I was kind of like, I don't want to be a consultant. Like I literally do not want the partner's job. And so there is, I so, just sold my first teeny tiny project and I was like, this So I started thinking to myself, like, it it was just time to come home, right? My family's all in Boston. I'd spent four years abroad. I wasn't planning on doing that. It was time to go home. And I also realized that given the number of years of experience I had, I was working in a consulting company that was growing so fast. There were lots of opportunities, but nobody was going to hire me into a non-professional services job anywhere near the same level of seniority. So basically I was kind of like, all right, I think I need to do an MBA. So I applied to some MBA schools got into Harvard, came back. And I was like, all right, I have no idea what I want to do. I've always done professional services and I know I don't want this life. I think I want to do a general management kind of job, right? Like a lot of different things, like a little bit of a lot of different stuff. And then when I started looking at jobs, like one option was sort of product management type jobs, focusing on like physical products. And I just thought, I am not the right person to decide whether the box should be orange shade 12 or orange shade 13 because they all look the same to me. I am not the right person. So you have to know yourself, right? Right. Don't ask me what color something should be. And so I started applying for two uh, consumer services companies with kind of the combination of data and people. And it turns out that insurance is exactly that, right? Lots of data and taking care of people in their moment of need. And so I interviewed with Progressive. All right, so now I'm going to tell you the embarrassing story, which is that I'd never owned a car before and I had not lived in the U.S. as an adult. And I grew up in Massachusetts and Progressive didn't write in Massachusetts at the time. So... I wasn't actually clear when I walked into the interview that Progressive was an insurance company. Um,
0: Do you think it was like related to Progresso Soup? You're like, Progressive? Progresso? I didn't
1: even apply. There was this thing where like you had to apply for interviews. And then if there was a cancellation, then you could just sign up like on the door, basically. And I was like in an off-campus location that was really annoying. And I already had a suit on and it was so uncomfortable, right? And so I was kind of like, oh, well, I just finished my interview, and next door there are slots with this, like, is that the soup? I don't think I like soup, but maybe I'll talk to them. And literally, Ron Davies, who <laughs> you may, may or may not have run into, talked me into insurance. So it, I blame him. It's totally because I thought they were making soup. Insurance is better than soup. Yes. i sticking with that story. That's how <laughs> I ended up in insurance.
0: <laughs> nice. And so what did you learn? You were a product manager at Progressive, then you are a product manager at Plymouth Rock Assurance, and then you spent six years at Liberty as yep. a director of state operations, SVP of commercial markets, SVP of commercial insurance. Over that time, and that was that was a period of 13 years. So you had 13 yep. years to really soak it in, right? What did you learn about the great things about insurance and where were the big pain points that led yeah. you to wanting to start your yeah. own
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about Louisiana before uh, before we started the show, right? And various visits we've all made to Louisiana. And I have to tell you that Louisiana is the reason I stayed in insurance. So I started at Progressive down in the Southeast in R- their Richmond, Virginia office in July of 2005. And we probably all remember if we're old enough that Hurricane Katrina happened in August of 2005, right? Yep. Louisiana was part of our region. I didn't have responsibility for Louisiana at that time, but I was soon to inherit it. What happened was utter devastation for people who aren't familiar, like just utter devastation, like people's lives absolutely destroyed. A lot of people didn't evacuate because there'd been a lot of storm warnings and they weren't sure and whatever else and like everything they own just gone, right? And Progressive made some decisions really quickly and ahead of the regulators and ahead of the rest of the industry where they decided to do things like Glenn Renwick, who was the CEO at the time, decided to crush every car that had been touched by the floodwaters because of the potential for biological contamination, regardless of whether it was repairable or not. We were writing checks to people who were standing there with like a plastic grocery bag like and bare feet in tears in the dust because they had no idea where their pets were. They were separated from their family. They had nowhere to go. They had nothing and they couldn't even locate their car. And we were writing them checks. The progressives claims response team got kicked out of the the hotel they were in by FEMA, which hadn't made the plans that Progressive did, right? Wow. Like there was just like so much rightness in that and taking care of people the right way in their moment of need in a way that also is profitable and good for employees and shareholders and everybody else too. Like there was just so much goodness in that. I was like, this is where I want to be, right? Yeah. So that was really inspiring really early in my insurance career. And I think from there, I took the sort of the idea that like it's privilege.
0: Kate, you know what's so cool? Is that you have, you have, you know, those, those watershed moments. And of course, COVID is yeah. another watershed moment where, yeah. mm-hmm. where people's true colors come out. Yep. Yep. You know, and you're, you're saying, you know, that this is when you actually prove your metal Like, are you, mm-hmm. are, are you for real or not? Like, are you, yep. real, are you gonna, are you going to do the right thing or not? And and of course, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of movies out there about insurance companies not doing the right thing. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And, Unfortunately, there's not a lot of movies about them doing the right thing because they just don't make for good movies. Like, yeah. oh, wait, you mean the CEO stood up and did the right thing and took care of everybody and they yeah. were all housed the next day? Well, there's no drama in that because it's literally yeah. just no. He just did the right thing, right? And yeah, and and that's and and uh, it 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 certainly shows the social need for insurance.
1: Yes. yeah. Well, and it's like the people who are on the front line, like I'm not saying that there are no bad people in insurance. Of course there are. It's a giant industry, right? There are yeah. bad people on occasion everywhere. But like, you know, like your teenage son gets in an accident late at night and is afraid to call you and calls the insurance company because he's got the insurance card. The first question that person who picks up the phone is going to ask are, is, are you OK? Right. And they're going to send an ambulance if or they're going to tell him what to do next. Like in that moment, that's that's what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. You get in an accident, you're at home, the claims adjuster comes out to look at the car, they're kneeling in like the snow in the driveway, like looking at like the front quarter panel or whatever. They're doing the best they can to make sure that they're being as fair as possible and that you're going to be put back together the way, you know, the way you should be, right? Like, but yeah, you're right. Those stories, they don't make good television, do they? But that's the reality of most of our industry, the vast majority, Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: So what did you learn? Where were the pain points over this 13 years of three different major insurance companies that led you to want to start your own your own you know what 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 we've been calling this show sort of yeah. d- digital MGA.
1: Yeah, oh I like that. A few things. I think one is just the rigidity of the the IT infrastructure, right? The ecosystems are so complex and so old that it's really really hard to innovate, right? So that's one. The second is the rigidity of our culture. And this is something we've done to ourselves as insurance people, right? Like you get trained in this narrow little silo and typically you stay in that for your whole career. I mean, I spent the first six years of my career in personal lines and then moved over to commercial lines. And it was like, a completely different business. I was like, but, but wait, but most of the cars are still Toyota Camry's, you know, like, (laughs) but it's, it was completely different and it was an unusual move to have made. Right. So I think that's the second, like we can't, we can't see when we have these highly matrix organizations and we work in these silos and doing something different would mean stepping in someone else's silo. Right. And then the third piece is just, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before as well. A lot of insurance products are built on very old court cases, Right. And so you end up with these situations where the products match the court cases of kind of yesteryear, and they don't match people's lifestyles. And so there are giant segments of the market that we just miss entirely because of this agedness and rigidity, right? Like inland marine, did somebody make that up for like a reason that makes any sense? No, no. It came out of a court case, right? Like we need something that's not ocean marine. What are we going to call it? Inland marine, right? I mean, like normal people don't talk like that, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Rob? Okay, so amazing background. Thank you so much for for sharing your biography with us. Yeah. And it's so great to, to have you on. So uh, before we learn more about surround, which I'm excited to, to talk to you about, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on the pros and cons of working in in corporate insurance. I know you have your CBCU designation, which I have as yep. well. So it's kind of the stamp of a, a true insurance nerd, right? And, and what would you say to to anyone out there uh, listening who's thinking about making the leap? And I, I want to tease, uh, we are going to get to the news section later. And you had a great article on LinkedIn. Oh, so I'll, I'll talk more about it that came out uh, this week. And, and just anyway, yeah, I think this is something that's very, very timely. Obviously, with COVID, with 2020, mm-hmm. you know, we've got recession, we've got layoffs, the economy's been coming back. But now the numbers are spiking up. And so I know it's been a tumultuous year and people, you know, are in in different phases, either they may have lost their job or they're afraid they're going to lose their job or they're kind of thinking, you know, this isn't a time I feel like I should be changing jobs. But at the same time, like maybe, you know, I can't wait right indefinitely. So just would love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, these are these are really, really tough times for a lot of people. Right. And so all joking aside, like that's something we got to figure out how to how to handle. Right. As a, as a society. But yeah. So I'm going to start by saying I don't think that there are entrepreneurial people and corporate people. <laughs> There does seem to be this mythology that never the twain do mean. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. That is that is not a growth mindset, as I would tell my daughter, right? They do take very, very different skill sets though, right? And I'm also going to start up by saying that, frankly, being an entrepreneur is kind of a privilege, right? Like with my massive student loans coming out of my undergrad, this would not have worked for me then, but it does now, right? So- acknowledging all of that you know a lot of corporate life is about going along to get along fitting in figuring out how the system works and then supporting that system and working within it or if you're breaking it you need to understand it well enough to break it in ways that you can accomplish your objectives right and that is a skill right like i mean some of the greatest things in human civilization have come about because we have been able to coordinate large numbers of people working together on a single project, and that's what a corporation is. So there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not critical of, of corporate life, generally speaking. You do end up with a lot of slow stuff and old stuff and politics that are a result of all of these people, <laughs> right? But those are real skills. On the entrepreneurial side, on the other hand, you know, you're, you're kind of you eat what you kill, right? So you need to ship, you need to turn things that you need to have a lot of different kinds of skills. You need to be willing to do things that you don't know how to do very well. You need to do the grinding elements of, you know, making sure that everybody has health insurance or like buying your own small business insurance is like the most complicated thing on the planet. And, I, and I'm a licensed insurance producer, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't even understand these accord forms. So there's a grind to it as much as there's an excitement. And I think that that's, that's something that that gets overlooked. I also think that InsureTech, if we're going to combine the two, has had a lot of – InsureTech 1.0 was kind of a lot of tech people coming in saying, hey, this industry is broken. We're going to fix it. The industry is not broken. There are pieces of it that are. What's accessible to them is a lot of like the front-end distribution stuff or the back-end process stuff. And so that's what got fixed. And then I think now you've got this like wave 2.0 of insurance people who are kind of like, wait, we see ways to change the the industry as well. And hopefully we get this melding of like the best of technical expertise and the best of insurance expertise. And we build something new together. Right.
2: I love it. No, that's a fantastic answer. And and you know, I've met more and more people over the past two, or three years like yourself, Kate, that that have their roots in insurance. Right. And yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I talk a story in in my book about meeting somebody from silicon valley for the first time in 2015 at a at a cbcu annual meeting in indianapolis and it was like oh, why are you here? Like, yeah. you know, a non-insurance nerd. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to learn everything there is to know about your industry in yeah. four days. And then I'm going to go yeah. back and put you all out of a job. There's
1: there's a hubris to that. So we've been very lucky. Our investors are people who know insurance or they're, where their funds, their funds that invest specifically in the tech space. But I remember very early in this journey, sitting in front of a partner at a large Silicon Valley VC who said to me, oh, well, we have a similar investment already it's a company that invented telematics for auto insurance. It, this is not rude. It was another company that I don't know if they exist anymore, but he literally said to me, "They invented. we invested last year in their series A and they invented telematics. And I was like, Progressive ran the first telematics trials that they did in 1999. I don't think you invented telematics. You invested in something thinking they invented a technology that has existed for 20 years. Right. So there's a hubris there that I think that, It's like fantastic to hear about someone like that being at a CPCU conference. I don't think four days is enough to suck up the whole industry, but you know it's a start, right?
0: Oh, bless their hearts, as we would say. Yeah, you know we have two phrases for that in the South: "Bless your heart" and "You're so sweet."
1: (laughs) Neither of those is a compliment, right?
0: Yeah, neither of neither of those is a compliment. (laughs) It is. uh, It is not. So let's uh, let's talk about surround. Yeah. Uh, what was the moment? And by the way, thank you for clearly delineating that people are not either corporate or entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. You can be entrepreneurial in a corporate environment, and then you mm-hmm. become an entrepreneur by launching your own business or by leading yep. a whole. Like, I, for example, one of my good friends, and I can't announce it yet. I'm looking okay. forward to announcing on the show. I can just say one of my friends just got named president of a, of a really neat venture that's a wholly owned subsidiary of a of a, of an insurance company. And Sweet. I'm really excited about it for him. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a, it's a really neat opportunity. And you know, yes, he's an entrepreneur. Uh, he, he is, he's an entrepreneur on- in, in, in every yeah. way you can define entrepreneur, but mm-hmm. it, but it's not, it's not a separate company. So there's, 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 it's not either, or it's not binary. No. Okay. It's not binary. And uh, You know, I worked for a 150,000-person company before I started J.B. Knowledge. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I just decided I wanted to have my own gig rather than be an entrepreneur in somebody else's gig. And that Mm -hmm. was just my my decision. So I appreciate you defining that. So what was the aha moment for Surround? (laughs)
1: So this is where I'm supposed to tell you some glossy story about how I secretly always wanted to be an entrepreneur at Career Day in sixth grade, but actually it was kind of an accident. So here's what actually happened. So I up and quit Liberty Mutual. It's a great company. They take good care of their customers. It it can be a very good place to work, especially earlier in your career. You get great training. Right. But I just kind of was at this point where, you know, I had an organization of several hundred people. I had the modeling team reporting to me doing all of the, the modeling for for our underwriting and rating models on the commercial line side. And some days it felt like my typists in Wausau, Wisconsin, were doing more for our consumers than like these like $200,000 a year, like people that we were hiring away from Google when we could. And it wasn't like, these statisticians' fault, right? It was just that in a large corporation, it always makes more sense to improve your workers' comp loss ratio by 0.1 percent than it does to do anything different, right? And I think that was the moment when, in retrospect, that was the moment when was probably cleared me when I was ready to leave for those reasons that it was time to become an entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't for a while. I left. I actually went back to school for a while. I am officially a graduate school dropout. I have finished four of five semesters of a clinical nutrition master's degree, and I started doing. Some consulting so I started consulting for I know I know like <laughs> <right>? yeah <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm a geek of maybe a slightly different sort than you but still one yes yes so I started doing some consulting on the side because people started calling me up asking if I could do some insurance product consulting and I mean frankly it was like easy money for interesting work, right why not And then uh, Kristen Bissett, who's uh, the chief actuary at QBE North America who used to sit next to me at Liberty, called me one day and said, "You must know Jake Grayson." And I said, nope, don't, don't know him. And she was like, oh, well, he was one of our peers at Liberty. And he's got this idea for a company called Surround. He's really, really early on and doesn't, doesn't uh, have anybody to help him on the, the product side. Are you interested in doing some consulting for him? And I was like, sure, why not? So that was like back in early 2018, I guess. And I did some consulting for him. And it was really interesting. But you know, I was in school, right? So I'm like consulting on the side. And one day he said to me, have you ever thought about co-founding an insure tech? And I said, no. And he said, no, I, I meant actually, did you want to start this insure tech with me? And I wasn't quite sure for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I scarcely knew him. And they do say you should know your co-founder before you start a company. And second of all, I was a little bit unsure about like the regulatory kind of regime and whether the regulators would like this. So I said to him, why don't we go out and visit some regulators and see how that goes? So we did this trip out to the Midwest, visited a bunch of regulators out there, spent a lot of time driving through cornfields in a car which is an excellent way to get to know people. Um, And two things, I discovered two things. So one of them is that it is in fact true that he and I can talk about insurance for 16 hours a day and then wake up the next day and do it again. It was also the case, I told my husband before I left that one or two things was gonna happen. Either I was gonna come back and say, hey, I wanna be an entrepreneur. Or I was going to call him from the side of the road in Peoria and say, I can't find an Uber, but Jay threw me out of the car. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I learned that that I did not. There is, in fact, self, good cell phone reception outside of Peoria, and I did not get kicked out of the car. So that worked out well, too. Nice. So that's how I got here. Yeah.
0: And, and, the, and the quest of Surround was to provide modern insurance for people who don't own a lot of things because, you know, modern yeah. economy, they're renting and sharing stuff, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly where it came from. There are a number of segments in kind of, you know, the US and every place else that are really underserved by insurance, but this is one of them, right? Property and casualty insurance typically comes along with things, right? And if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that PNC insurance protects you from is not things, right? <laughs> like if you get in a car accident, it's your liability. That's not a thing, right? It's, it's, it's your responsibility or legal responsibility at least. But the reason that that design worked was because traditional lifestyles used to be more tethered to those things. So like you'd graduate from high school or from college, you would finish your military service and you would buy a car and you'd be 18 or 22 or 23. And you would go to your parents' insurance agent or, you know, where there were direct, to, direct response insurance companies, you would buy your first, car, your first car insurance policy. And with that, you would get that liability coverage for the most likely thing to happen to a young person, which is to get into a car accident and cause some damage or injure somebody, right? And then a couple of years later, you might get married, you buy a condo or a house, you get your homeowner's insurance. And with that would come worldwide liability protection if you happen to do anything and your stuff would be covered then too because you're sure you accumulate stuff then you have a child you get life insurance like it's this whole thing and as long as your life is exactly traditional then these products work really great for you right and so we've got these giant insurance ecosystems of technology that are built around serving up exactly those products so then what happens when young people start delaying the purchases of cars and rings and homes and everything else, right? There is no product for them, and yet they're exposed to more risk than ever before, right? Our social safety net is not what it was. The job market is not what it was for, for people 20 years ago. The Their student loans are sky high, and they worry, right? like we We interviewed hundreds and hundreds of consumers, and we ran into people doing things like buying term life insurance because they had private student loans that their parents had co-signed for. And they were concerned that if they died, that their parents would get stuck with those loans. So they bought term life insurance for that purpose. Like that just shows you, that's not what term life insurance is for, right? That just shows you that there's sort of like products that are out there that people are trying to twist around to, to work for them and they just don't. So that's what we're doing. Our first set of products is aimed at this like young, modern, professional living in the city. They drive rented, borrowed, car-shared cars for personal use. They rent an apartment. They might have a side gig as well. We have a super simple, easy, three-minute-to-quote policy $60 a month launching here in Massachusetts any day as soon as we get our regulatory approval.
0: Wow, that's awesome. So it's going to cover renter's insurance. It's going to cover... When you're renting a car, like, you know, go cars, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zip, 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 zip car, car. any yeah. of them. Yep. So mm-hmm. it covers renting things. It covers renting bikes. So if you like mm-hmm. bike share programs, if you get into accidents, turns out you have yep. liability if you hit yep. somebody when you're on a bike. Yep. Did you know that Did y'all, you? if you, if you're, if you're on a, so I, the, the the most dangerous time I ever had on a bike share program at the time I was in London a couple of years ago, speaking at a conference, and I love riding bikes like a lot, yeah. a lot, I love it a lot, And so I, I, I took a well, they they call it, they jokingly called it Boris Bikes because of the mayor of London <laughs> came up with the program, <laughs> yeah, you know. But it was it was the city bike share program sponsored by Santander Bank or whatever. Yeah. And so I got on the bike and I'm riding around and uh, I almost got in two accidents within the first hour because I looked the wrong way, you know. <laughs> You know, traffic's coming from the left. You know, Ugh, in the United scary. States and in the UK, it's coming from the right, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so I looked the wrong way, and I mean, it was it was scary. But you know, it turns out if I hit somebody, I actually have a liability there, and I can't think of an insurance policy that covers my activity during that bike rental. That's what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're cover you're covering things that a modern millennial, Gen Zer, Zenial is going to is going to need if they're not going to own all the things. Yeah. E- even if you do own a policies, not all of them have an umbrella that covers an activity like that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So what this is, is it's a bunch of monoline line policies that we're sticking together. So you want to get into the guts of what we've built. What we've actually built is a system that allows us to take bits and bytes of insurance and to recombine them so that they feel like one policy. Like We're not hiding from consumers that there are multiple documents. We're just putting them all together, right? But it allows us to personalize, right? So initially. This Model T is pretty static, but very quickly we can swap in and out either products that we create as as the MGA, right, or partners redistributed products into our bundle. So like accident health products might be a good example of the kinds of things that we would redistribute.
0: Awesome. All right, mm-hmm. Rob? Okay, yeah, so tell
2: me a little bit more. I, I, I love, you know, when I kind of visit visit Saran's website, right? Uh, I I feel like you guys are trying to make coverage fun. Maybe that's uh, too strong a word on it on there, but you have tools on there like yeah. the Saran Simulator, right? Where yep. it's like, yep. hey, here's yep. some things that you could face, right? And yeah, and making people think about the exposure part of it, not just, well, I was told I need X, Y, Z. You also have um, what you call a starter pack, which is kind of exactly what you described, right, these bottom line policies. So I think you've told us a little bit more about how you're different from traditional insurance, but maybe you just go a little deeper. I'm interested, you know, are you connecting with your partners via API? What is your distribution channel? It looks like you you sell direct on your website, but you also have a tie-in with agents and brokers. So yeah, how are you finding these consumers and then how are you supplying them with the products you need? Thank you.
1: The cat yeah. So early on, my assumption was that very early on was that of course we were going to be direct to consumer because isn't every insure tech startup, right? But there were a couple of problems with that, right? Which which you can see in the S ones for, for many of the, the insure techs that have gone gone public. One of which is that customer acquisition in the direct channels is really freaking expensive, right? I mean, progressive spent more than two billion dollars, that's billion, <laughs> on uh television advertising and support for their direct channel, right? And something like a third to a half of their business is actually independent agency, right? So they're paying commissions over there as well, which are not in that number. So to be competitive, especially in a world where there's so much noise at Google AdWords and Facebook and all of the rest, it just like, the economics just don't make any sense, especially when you're talking about relatively lower average written premium policies, right? These are not $10,000 business policies or anything. And so we ended up having some conversations with independent agents pretty early on. And independent agents still have about half the market in the US for property and casualty, about $350 billion. They have about 40% of the personal lines market. And although that shrunk at first as things kind of came online 10 years ago, it's now holding fairly steady, right? And they've got a couple of things that are really interesting. Uh, I'm going to say three things that are really interesting. One is that they actually have long experience in intergenerational client relationships, right? So most independent agencies, even the largest ones, are family businesses at heart, or were family businesses, right? And some of them have been in generate in operation for three or four generations. And so it used to be that when you bought your first car at 18, you went to mom and dad's insurance agency and you got sorted out. Right. And and it was probably your parents, insurance agent, son or daughter that was serving you. Right. That's that's kind of how that works. Uh, that moment has disappeared. Right. Because like Junior's not buying a car at 18 anymore. Right. And independent agents are very aware of that. Right. So they have access to the family. They know when Junior gets removed from the parents' auto insurance policy. But they're left competing with Progressive and Geico, you know, eight years later, which is ridiculously expensive. So they have this burning platform. And nobody's really built a product that's for this younger consumer, really designed well, digital, beautiful, quick, easy. And that also works for independent agents. Right. So there's just this total lack of product innovation. So that made a lot of sense to us uh, in terms of getting into the market. It also turns out that parents pay at least one bill for half of the people between 20 and 40 who are full-time employed in the U.S., right? That's not student, that's full-time employed, right? So whether it's the parent buying the policy or the kid, you know, so be it. The other thing is, is that a lot of large uh, independent agencies also have employee benefits brokerage uh, businesses as well that are quite sizable. Our traditionally... Property and casualty hasn't fit very well in that space because you've got all these like accident and health and disability products that are voluntary supplemental benefits that are quick and easy to sell, like 20 bucks for a cancer policy and, you know, 10 bucks for something else, whatever. Right. They're easy. And then it's like, oh, and if you want property and casualty, go talk to the nice people at that table over there. And three days from now, after asking you 40 questions, they'll give you a quote for your homeowner's insurance. It'll be great. That just doesn't work. Right. But our product is basically three questions, three or four minutes, and you're done. So it fits that channel as well. So um, the agents we're working with are going in, in both channels. And then the third piece that's really interesting is that I think that we have this idea that independent agents are all down at the Rotary Club talking to their golf partners about insurance, right? And that is true for many agencies. But if there are, you know, 40,000 insurance agencies in the United States, which is roughly right, 35,000 of them at least are less than a million dollars in premium, right? So the other remaining 5,000, many of them are actually very large, very sophisticated businesses, and many of them have very sophisticated digital businesses, right? They have digital marketers. They have a presence in every channel that any direct business would. And in the same way that there's no such thing as a corporate person or an entrepreneurial person, there's no such thing as a director, an agency consumer. Nobody at age 22 wakes up in the morning and is like, I definitely want to buy my insurance from an insurer who sells direct to consumers. No, right? That's ridiculous. If you ask random people in the street who their insurance company is, like six of them will give you the name of an agency, and like the remaining four, like half of them will give you the name of some insurance company they're actually not insured with because this is not top of mind or something that
0: people. Okay, Kate, it it cracks me up on my pilot. I'm a I'm a pilot. And mm-hmm. On my on my aviation forums, my pilot buddies will be like, "Does anybody know another insurance company?" I hate all the quotes I'm getting, and they'll and then they'll give them they'll give him the names of eight other brokers, and I right. and I'll right. and I just reply back, and I'll say, "There's only nine markets. They're all shopping. All nine. You're wasting your time." And I just and I just, exactly. and I just exactly. <laughs> and I'm like exactly like right. I, I, I I I do this like because it keeps coming up. It's I guarantee you once to twice a week because the the aviation market got really hard. This year, and and it's just been a tough year to buy insurance yeah. and aviation, and yeah. so they, they I, I just reply back and I'm like, you're literally wasting your time, and, and I do yeah. it every time. I'm like, stop asking this question, stop asking you, delete your account because like you, you don't <laughs> understand how insurance works. You're right. you, you're you're gonna you're gonna get frozen out anyway by all these guys because they're gonna say I've already quoted that guy. I mean, right. it's it's you know it, it's it's yeah. it's challenging. It, um, it
1: is, and yeah, it's totally true. And if you look at most of the products, the insurance products that do sell really well online without any help, two things happen. Either they're very, very simple products, like a travel product that you buy to cover a specific trip, right? Or what you don't see is the massive call centers that those direct to consumer companies have, right? Because people have questions. They want somebody to talk to, you know, after they get through the digital part of the process, if they have a question, they want to pick up the phone, right? They don't want to ask like a web chat, right? So you need to kind of have both. You need to serve them digitally. But then that that human voice for complicated purchases like insurance is really important. And so that's the role we see for agents. We're giving them the digital tools they need to bring these customers in and to get them through the quote really quickly and to give them the product they need. But the agent is there to talk at the moment that somebody has a question,
0: right? Awesome. Well, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about uh, where y'all are going and certainly around... (laughs) The, the reality of insurance that going direct to consumer and, and, and doing it without $20 billion <laughs> or $2 billion <laughs> right. or $1 billion or $200 million, yeah. it's, it sounds so wonderful, but you know, brutal card hold reality mm-hmm. locks in play. And that is sometimes, in fact, almost all times, you have to have people there to talk to other people. And uh, there's a lot of ways you can streamline the underwriting process and Mm -hmm. the claims process. There's a lot of ways to cut down on the incredible amount of waste there is in policy and claims. But the reality is that customer acquisition costs has eaten many business models alive because getting them to just to come to your website is a big deal. If you're you're not going to play ball with the existing distribution channels that exist in the market. And that is uh, that is the name of the game. So you have an interesting news story, Rob, and I think it's by someone who's here. So what, what you got this week?
2: Yeah, I already kind of teased this, but Kate had a, a wonderful article on LinkedIn this week uh, titled Corporate to Co-Founder, the insurance to Insure tech jump after a layoff. So we'll include that link in the show notes. And I just want to thank you, Kate, for writing this article. I'm kind of curious, maybe your inspiration. It's well worth a read, even if you're not in this position. It, it's, it's very thoughtful, but it's also funny. So Kate, you know, your personality that people have got to know on this podcast also comes out in your writing. So would love you Maybe just to to comment, like what caused you to, to, to write this and what kind of response have you gotten this week?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I get a lot of calls because I made that corporate, not after layoff, but I made that corporate to ensure to entrepreneurship transition. And so uh, there have been some more layoffs announced recently. And so I've been getting a lot of calls from people I've either worked with or know asking about the transition. And just what I find is that people ask really practical questions that, frankly, you could probably search online, like, you know, what are the early insure tech startups in my area? What are the later stage ones? But what they miss is that what I think is really hard about entrepreneurship is that you need to be somebody different, right? You need to grow into a different kind of role and figuring out if you're actually going to enjoy that is hard if you don't understand how the role is different from corporate life. So I think that was that was what inspired me. And yeah, I've gotten a lot of reads and a lot of comments and a lot of calls. It was funny, you know, the articles that I've angsted over that are technical insurance stuff, not so much, but but this, I just think there there's so much change going on for people. I think entrepreneurship is a thing that people are thinking about. And so, yeah, I've had a lot of people reach out.
2: That's awesome to hear. Yeah. So definitely connect with Kate on LinkedIn if you haven't. She's also a great. Twitter follow as well, and yeah, she's delivering good content, and on top of all the other things. Thank that she's you. Doing. It's around, and it actually struck a, a nerve. It, not that you knew this timing, Kate, but I actually have a buddy of mine that has been a internet tech founder for a couple of years. Mm. He's been trying mm-hmm. to sell technology into the marketplace to carriers, yeah. uh, with you know pretty limited success, to be honest with you. Yeah. And uh, he's been talking with VC funders. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he was trying to bootstrap originally and kind of did like yeah. a convertible note, things like that. Mm-hmm. But now he's been talking with funders and and they said, have you thought about an MGA model? So it's kind of funny that we've been talking about your MGA this week. And so he was asking me about that and yeah. what I thought about it and whether I might want to come on board. And I was yep. like, well, you know, two years ago, I would have never said, you know, <laughs> yes. But I was like, now I'm a little mm-hmm. bit more open to think about it. Yeah. So I didn't say yes. Yeah. So I'll keep everyone posted whether that works out. But so it was just kind of, I guess, very, very timely that I came across this this article this week. So and then James, the other thing that I had, you know, we talked about funding, right? We talked about early stage and late stage. So in late stage news, Hippo took in another three hundred and fifty million dollars.
0: <laughs> because um, why not? The-
2: yeah cuz why not cuz it was out there so kind of following their series E uh, Mitsui Sumitomo was the one that made the investment so definitely check out the article in Crunchbase they continue to rocket lots of speculation on a 2021 IPO and we've seen lots of IPO activity Lemonade, Root, etc. this uh, year. So definitely one of those companies that uh, is looking to expand basically to to all the states and and be available to something like 95% of uh, homeowners So the money. will help them do that. And then earlier stage of Series A, uh, Flyreel, which is based in Denver, Colorado. And shout out to Flyreel. They were one of the early sponsors of my book tour events uh, when I came to uh, to Denver. So they got $10 million and Google said, hey, can we get in on that as well? So uh, these guys do some Pretty cool stuff where you can actually take video walking around your home and of different systems like your water heater and whatnot, and then they actually are able to use machine learning to see like what is the make and model number of your water heater and let's hit that against the database to see how often does those water heaters fail and guess what they told you it's good for seven years but it, you know, our data shows it's only good for seven things like that so very very innovative technology mm-hmm. um, super excited that they're getting traction in the marketplace so definitely check out my friends at Flyreel.
0: Awesome. I, Kate, did you see the link? I just texted over to you if you click on that. I
2: did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Click on that. So right. that's that's a let me Google that for you. L-M-G-T-F-Y. So when people ask you questions that they could have Googled, I want you to go to that website. <laughs> and what you do, it, it literally replays how to use Google. <laughs> <laughs> and and then it puts the query in for them and then shows them shows them how they could have filled out that query instead of asking you the question that you're just going to Google because I have a. You know, I have a I have a smart aleck buried deep inside. This is one of my favorite things to do when people ask me questions they could have just Googled. Yeah. So uh, there you go. Let me Google that for you there. That's the fun way to prank your friends when they ask you silly questions <laughs> that they could have Googled.
2: Well, um, I'm going to use it for my 19-year-old as well, James. <laughs> yes. We had to sit down and had this conversation with her last week to say, honey, yes, we are your mom and dad. You are a child, but you are 19 now. And you're asking a bunch of questions that we don't know any more than you do. Like, how do I get a bus pass and go around? I'm like, I haven't taken a bus in 20 years in San Antonio. I don't know. I gave you the website, ViaInfo.net. Check it out. Right? Yeah. You look it up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Figure but it out, Junior. Like, I have to say the the query that you've put in here begs the all-important question about InsureTech. Does it or does it not have an E?
0: Yes, I think it does, but uh, that's me. I don't like that they truncated the E. I'm not a fan of truncating, you know, character uh, character strings, but uh, that's just me. Maybe it's because the trunk function only cuts off empty spaces and coding, and I learned that a long time ago. I'm a super geek, so I'm a super geek. Super geek. I don't like to truncate now, and so I like having an E in InsureTech, but that's just me. The E stands for excellent and electronic. Mm and everything. Okay. And that's our show today. Kate, Terry, I could talk to you for three hours, but we're not doing a Dan Carlin Hardcore History podcast on the Celtic Holocaust. We're actually talking about insurance technology. So thank you for jumping on the InsureTech Geek.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And Rob Galbraith, good to be back with you. we got a few weeks until Christmas and New Year's break. I plan on thoroughly enjoying it, doing some recording together.
2: Likewise, likewise. We got a great lineup coming up.
0: Yes, we do. Super excited Just stay tuned. And all of you out in listener land, thank you as always for joining us for another episode of the Insured Tech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge at jbknowledge.com, all about technology transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham, jamesbenham.com, with co host Rob Galbraith, end of insurance.com. Thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, Kara dalton Uh, our creative producer and thank you for joining us today we're taking you on a journey through insurance tech so enjoy the ride and geek out see you next time